Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good morning, everyone. We are glad you're with us this morning. Victor Blackwell by my side as we get to this really significant breaking news. So much happening overnight here. The five things to know this morning, Thursday, August 10th. We know 36 people are confirmed dead in this devastating wildfire across Hawaii. The flames charring hundreds of buildings. Blackhawk helicopters have been deployed as paradise burns. Brand new reporting just out this morning about Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, his luxurious lifestyle, and who was funding it. ProPublica reports that rich benefactors footed the bill for at least 38 luxury vacations, 26 private jet flights, and a dozen VIP passes to sporting events. More breaking news now. A presidential candidate in Ecuador assassinated at a rally. The anti-corruption candidate was killed just 10 days before the election. New video coming in overnight of a deadly FBI raid. A man was killed after making threats against President Biden and other elected officials. And new information in the Atlanta area investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Sources tell CNN prosecutor Fonnie Willis is seeking more than a dozen indictments as former President Trump releases a new ad attacking her. CNN This Morning starts right now. This is CNN Breaking News. We do begin on the breaking news out of Hawaii this morning, where 36 people are confirmed dead as these wildfires rage out of control, turning communities into ash. The death toll in Maui soaring overnight. New helicopter video shows the scale of utter devastation. This is Lahaina, a beautiful, historic and tropical getaway now smoldering. This is where people were jumping into the ocean to escape the fast-moving inferno, which was fueled by powerful winds from a hurricane. This is what the devastation looks like there on the ground. This was a neighborhood. It's wiped out now. Homes and businesses gone. All of them. The palm trees dead. The charred black. We have some before and after satellite images uh, to show you. Look at this. This is Lahaina uh, earlier this summer, before the catastrophe. And this is Lahaina now. Nearly every home and building destroyed. The different part of town here, uh, the shopping center outlets, the beachfront restaurants, all of them are now torched, ruins, gone. This was an area with parks and historical buildings and Maui's oldest banyan tree. And here's a satellite image of the same area now. I mean, it, it's pretty much gone. Mm-hmm. It's stunning to see our colleague Verona Miracles on the ground. In Maui, Veronica, good morning. I know the sun is yet to come up there. It's really the middle of the night. Talk to us about the death toll. What do we know? 
Well, Poppy and Victor, that news just coming in. It is midnight here in Maui, so many residents will be waking up to the devastating news that 36 of their loved ones, community members, friends, perished in that fire. Now, we are on the opposite side of Lahaina in a completely different area of the island. It is still cut off. Those roads are still closed. 11,000 people remain without power. Uh, communication lines are still down. So the information here to this side of the community is slowly trickling in. Oh my gosh, look at the harbor. The view from above is of shock and heartbreak. Oh my gosh. We were not prepared for what we saw. It looked like an area that had been bombed in the war. Wildfires rampaging across the island of Maui. Our entire street was burned to the ground. Decimating homes and businesses. Local people have lost everything. They've lost their house, they've lost their animals, and it's, it's devastating. Lahaina is on fire. The historic town of Lahaina, a popular tourist and economic hub on the island's west side, particularly affected with hundreds of structures impacted. It happened so fast, people stuck in traffic trying to get out and they're, they're slaying on, on both sides of the road, like something out of a, a horror movie. Most of the fires on Maui fueled in part by violent winds caused by Hurricane Dora, churning more than 800 miles away. Those winds now subsiding as the storm pushes away. The primary focus is to save lives and then to prevent human suffering and to mitigate great property loss. State Department crews assisting in efforts to restore communication across the islands and distribute water. With military helicopters aiding in extinguishing the fires. Two CH-47 supporting Maui County, they flew 13 hours, did 58 drops and about 150,000 uh, gallons of water to, uh, to assist with su suppression of the fire. Recovery will be a long road ahead, according to Hawaii's Lieutenant Governor Sylvia Luke. The damage to the infrastructure, it's not just um, buildings. I mean, these were small businesses that invested in Maui. These were local residents. And, uh, you know, we need to figure out a way to help a lot of people in the next several years. And more than 11,000 people were flown out of Maui yesterday. Hundreds of people spending the night at the airport waiting to catch early morning flights today. Officials here asking people, cancel your vacations. Do not come to Maui. Save the resources for those who need it. Poppy, Victor. Veronica Miracle reporting there from Maui. Thank you so much. Let's bring in now uh, James Tokioka. Uh, he is the director of the Department of Business, Economic Development and Tourism for the state of Hawaii. Thank you for your time. We're sorry to speak with you considering all that that's happening. When we last heard from you, it was tough to even assess uh, the, the hotel zones, the uh, challenges there because of the infrastructure problems, roads closed. Do you have a better idea of, of the destruction and damage in those areas now? Um, we do. We're um, leaving that information for Mayor Bisson on Maui to uh, disperse. But we know that you know right now it's midnight in Hawaii. So um, you know we're going to do a, a big assessment in the morning tomorrow. But from the tourism standpoint, we just want to make sure that uh, the message that goes out to your viewers uh, throughout the United States and across the world 
is that Hawaii is still open. It's West Maui uh, that is devastated. Uh, but what travelers are doing now that we're understanding is they're uh, changing their vacation plans. They're coming to Oahu. They're going to Hawaii Island and they're going to Hawaii. So some people who were on Maui, um, they came to the evacuation center here at the convention center and they communicate with, with us that they're either staying here and some are going to the other islands. But um, we don't want your guests to think that uh, the entire state of Hawaii is closed because it's not. Um, Oahu, like I said, where Waikiki is, one of the most famous beaches in the world is still available. Uh, uh, resorts on Hawaii Island and Hawaii are available and there is uh, occupancy. We have shared <clears throat> with our hotel partners um, uh, to make sure that we can give them the best rates available. Uh, we're trying to accommodate people. Some people have saved their whole life to come to Hawaii mm -hmm. and it would be a shame if they just went straight back to uh, their homes uh, on the mainland. So that's the situation now. Uh, but West Maui consists of Lahaina, Kapalua, and Kaanapali. So if people are planning vacations to those areas, they might, they might want to reconnect. And uh, airlines are not, uh, uh, they're not giving change fees. They're letting uh, their customers change their reservation for, for most of the areas that we've spoken to. So we want to make sure that people know that. James, do you have a sense of the containment of, of this fire? I mean, our reporting is that they're still raging. Do firefighters have a handle on this? Okay. <clears throat> Again, we're, we're not on Maui. We're on Oahu. Yep. Um, at one of the meeting earlier, uh, it's our understanding that the fires are not totally contained, okay. but they're not blazing like they were last night because the winds have okay. died down. Uh, Maui, Maui Fire, Fire Department uh, Chief Brad Ventura and his team have been doing an incredible job given the circumstances. Uh, we couldn't get the helicopters up because of the wind, uh, but now that the wind has subsided, uh, they're uh, working on uh, the dumps with water uh, onto the affected areas. That's a very helpful update. James Tokioka, thank you and good luck to everyone there. We're thinking of you. Thank you. Thank you very much for getting the message out to your viewers, um, Hawaii is still open. Of course. Also ahead, we're going to be joined by a family who had to evacuate from Maui. This is video of flames surrounding their home. It is the second time their life has been uprooted by wildfires. And there's more breaking news this morning. Uh, new details about Clarence Thomas's life off the Supreme Court bench. Just moments ago, ProPublica broke a new report detailing lavish vacations, private jet trips, VIP treatment at sporting events, more than we knew about before, and funded by a wider circle of billionaire friends. Let's bring in now Tom Foreman to break down this new reporting. Uh, Tom, uh, dozens of these, these advances, these gifts to the Supreme Court justice. It is really quite a list. And at a time when public support and faith in the Supreme Court has been plummeting, this is only going to intensify the scrutiny. The most complete accounting yet of the high life of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas shows much, much more than previously known. More private jets, more fancy vacations, more sporting events, all gifts from mega-rich businessmen and documented through public and private records, plus interviews by ProPublica. 
Justice Thomas has been living a life of extreme luxury for 30 years, underwritten by at least four different ultra-wealthy benefactors. Earlier reports have revealed lavish gifts to Thomas, including a house for his mother and this nine-day vacation in Indonesia from conservative billionaire Harlan Crow. I've come from regular stock. Who also underwrote a film about Thomas's humble taste. I prefer the RV parks. Now the list of benefactors includes three more names, according to ProPublica, David Sokol, Wayne Huizinga, and Tony Novelli. The report says the four moguls collectively treated Thomas to 38 destination vacations, including a previously unreported voyage on a yacht around the Bahamas, 26 private jet flights, plus an additional eight by helicopter, a dozen VIP passes to professional and college sporting events, two stays at luxury resorts in Florida and Jamaica, and one standing invitation to an uber-exclusive golf club. The dollar value, likely in the millions, little of which appeared in required financial disclosures, according to ProPublica. Thomas has previously said he didn't feel the need to disclose some gifts, and that worries Jeremy Fogel, an expert on judicial ethics and a former judge. I simply couldn't have done this, and e even if the people involved didn't have interest before the court, uh, it it's it's just the the idea that you are receiving gifts of this magnitude. Associate justices make about $285,000 a year. In 2001, when they made about 100000 less, Thomas spoke up. The job is not worth doing for what they pay. It's not worth doing for the grief, but it is worth doing for the principal. Now he bristles at questions about his principles. He calls Crow merely a friend. Crow says they never talk about Thomas's work. And the new report found none of these wealthy pals seem to have had cases before the court. Still. Which one of these new benefactors, uh, just like Harlan Crow, came into his life after he was appointed to the Supreme Court. That's why it's so problematic from an ethics standpoint. There is no evidence that any of these wealthy pals broke any laws or rules with these extraordinary gifts, nor is it entirely clear that Clarence Thomas did anything technically wrong by accepting them. However, the earlier revelations about these big gifts spurred an outcry for the court to come up with much more transparent and easily understood rules about what is and what is not right in financial matters, and this report will likely make that drumbeat much louder. Tom Foreman uh, reporting for us. Tom, thank you. Joining us now, one of the ProPublica reporters behind this bombshell investigation, Brett Murphy, joins us now. We're going to get into how you reported this out in a moment because it is just fascinating. But to Tom's last point there about what was illegal, if anything, one of the lines in here you write, Thomas appears to have violated the law by failing to disclose flights, yacht cruises, and expensive sports tickets. So did Clarence Thomas break the law? According to the ethics experts, yes, there's violations of financial disclosure laws. He was supposed to report things like private plane trips, expensive sports tickets, because these were not exempt from disclosure. So um, Tom made the point and you reported that these billionaires came into his life uh, since 1991 when he ascended to uh, the Supreme Court. We all make friends over 30 years. Few of us make billionaire friends. Even fewer make several billionaire friends. What do they want from one another if they had no business before the court? 
Yeah, it's an interesting question and one we were trying to get at throughout the reporting. And what we learned kind of time and again was that um, they all had really similar ideologies. Uh, they conservative funders donated a lot to GOP candidates and causes over the years. Um, but he said, Thomas said, he told a biographer once, these are just my good friends. Uh, Wayne Heisinger is just a good friend of mine. He doesn't want anything from me. Uh, I can't give him anything in return. We just like talking. That's been kind of the through line with all these with all these benefactors. You know, the broad, and by the way, you guys and your team have done just phenomenal reporting. This isn't the first. This is a series of reports you guys have done on the Supreme Court and Clarence Thomas. Uh, this comes at a time when the Supreme Court has record low approval ratings from the American public. According to Gallup, people just don't trust it anymore uh, the way that they did. And it also comes at a time when there is no formal code of ethics. That's been rejected so far. And Chief Justice John Roberts refused to go and testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee on ethics issues. Will anything within the court change? Does anyone have power to change something? So they've been talking about it. Um, they've been saying that uh, inside there are discussions among the justices about adopting their own code of conduct, their own code of ethics. Uh, there are rules in place, uh, but a lot of them are being followed by the justices voluntarily. They say that they choose to follow certain uh, regulations around accepting gifts that all the lower courts have to follow. And these are, this is what a lot of the experts we talk to uh, think is the biggest problem, is, is the appearance of impropriety, the optics of all this, how it erodes trust, and this is why they want to address it. And just to be clear, um, did Clarence Thomas give you a direct response to all of these? I didn't see it. Not this latest reporting, yeah. no. no. He, had, he had told my colleagues earlier uh, when we first broke this story uh, in April that... He did not believe he had to disclose yeah. uh, this travel. And I have that. I can read it. Yeah. Uh, we got it up on the screen. He said that early in my tenure at the court, I sought guidance from my colleagues and others in the judiciary and was advised that this sort of personal hospitality from close personal friends who did not have business before the court was not reportable. I I'll lead that into the question I had is that he did report and specifically on these sporting events where he was flown to University of Nebraska games several times over several years. Um, he did report accommodation for the Daytona 500, but hasn't support, uh, reported any since. So he at some point knew that that type of gift was something he should report, but then didn't report the others. It seems to be some kind of conflict or explain that. Uh, I can't really explain it. But earlier he had reported things like this. He had reported the Daytona 500 event. He had reported uh, private plane travel, uh, but then he stopped. Uh, these things were not appearing in his disclosures anymore. He was going to the University of Nebraska games in the luxury suite. He was being flown around by other patrons on their private plans, but he wasn't reporting them. He stopped at some point, and he's never really addressed to us why that why he stopped. And the court itself didn't give you a statement? No. Okay. No. Brett Murphy, stick with us, uh, because you're going to be with us next hour. We'll get into your reporting and a lot more here. So thank you Thanks. very thank you. much. New details this morning about the Utah man who was shot and killed by FBI agents after allegedly making threats against President Biden before his visit to the state. What troubling social media posts are revealing? Also, a presidential candidate in Ecuador assassinated what we're learning about the suspects. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This morning, we're learning more about the FBI's deadly raid against a man who allegedly threatened to assassinate President Biden. FBI special agent shot and killed the man at his home in Utah yesterday. 
A law enforcement source says Craig Robertson pointed a gun at agents as they were giving him commands while trying to serve him a warrant. That's when the agent shot him. It all happened just hours before President Biden landed in Utah. CNN affiliate KSTU obtained video of the moments agents descended there on Robertson's home. We also have these court documents detailing the graphic and specific threats that Robertson made against President Biden. And I should note other prominent public figures and politicians in just the past few months. They include social media posts with photos like this one, a gun Robertson called his Democrat eradicator. Another one with several guns, quote, just getting ready for the 2024 election cycle. And on Sunday, he posted, quote, I hear Biden's coming to Utah digging out my old ghillie suit and cleaning the dust off the M24 sniper rifle. Welcome, buffoon in chief. Joining us now, CNN senior law enforcement analyst and former deputy director of the FBI, Andy McCabe. Gosh, we talk so much about these threats, but I don't know, for, for some reason, this one was just hours away from Biden getting to Utah. These threats were so recent. Uh, what was written on social media was so clear and as I understand from our reporting, authorities had gone, they'd been watching him and they'd even gone before to assess the situation. How does it get this close? Yeah, Poppy, this one is really unbelievably concerning. We, we often talk about the tough job that the FBI has in trying to distinguish who online is a real threat from, you know, the many other people who say objectionable things but don't have this sort of intent. So this individual was being uh, was under investigation since at least last March um, when he'd made other threatening postings, which were brought to the FBI's attention by a social media company. Uh, They went out to his house to talk to him. They had a a really confrontational um, interaction with him in which he refused to talk to them. And then the taunting and the threats to the FBI agents themselves came really uh, pretty nonstop after that. So you have someone who's not only saying these things, but indicating a clear intent and capability to carry these threats out, heavily armed, all sorts of different guns, you know, talking about targets ranging from Gavin Newsom to Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Alvin Bragg, Merrick Garland, really, really concerning. So Andy, after that uh, interaction in March, uh, over the, the several months since then, five months since then, why didn't the FBI go back? Was it the the posting about the president coming to Utah that at then po- that point gave them the uh, I guess probable cause they needed for the the search warrant? Yeah, well, you know, we don't know all of the investigative steps that they were that they were ticking off during that period. Um, there are a lot of things you have to do in terms of confirming identity understanding through forensic analysis of the postings exactly, uh, you know, who was on what computer and and being sure that the person you're looking at is the person who's actually generating these threats. I'm sure all that stuff was going on. But there's no doubt, Victor, that the threats to the president on the eve of his arrival in that area in Utah um, is likely what pushed the Bureau and the U.S. Attorney's Office over the edge to say, okay, this has to stop now. We need to get this person in custody to ensure that there is no violence to the president. You mentioned some of the other names you went after or threatened online, including the Attorney General Merrick Garland, the Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg. These are people who have cases against the president that are yet to go to tri- former President Trump that are yet to go to trial. I just wonder if you're concerned, Andy, 
that this is just the beginning of more threats like this. Poppy, I feel fairly confident that this is the beginning of more threats. We know that those people you just mentioned are already having to live under bolstered security details because of the death threats they've received. We also know that President Trump's most extreme, and I'll add deranged supporters, I'm talking about the very, very most extreme of that group, they listen to his comments very directly. You know that from the January 6th folks, some of whom said they only went to the Capitol because the president told them to. We all remember Caesar Sayoc, who engaged in a, a bombing, uh, attempted bombing campaign on the president's behalf. Uh, Ricky Schiffer, the gentleman who shot up the, F the FBI Cincinnati office after the search warrant was executed. So I don't think there's any doubt that we're going to see, and the FBI will continue to investigate additional cases in which people who are very, very tied to supporting the former president, follow his violent, his threatening rhetoric, his dog whistle rhetoric, which he's constantly putting out there. And some of those, the most, uh, the most extreme of which will actually try to carry these things out. This has unfortunately become a part of our political nature in this country right now. Yeah, the Fulton County DA, Fannie Willis, she's increased her security yeah. as well and has talked about the threats that she's received after being targeted uh, by the former president. Andy McCabe, good to have you. Thanks. We do have more on this breaking news out of Hawaii this morning. Overnight, we learned 36 people have been killed in Maui County. In these unprecedented wildfires next, we'll speak with a man who narrowly escaped his home with his family with nothing but the clothes on their back. If anybody's still out here, the fire is on Front Street and it is time to go. That is a charter boat crew member running through a pier in Maui, warning people of the raging wildfire approaching overnight. We did learn the death toll in Maui County has risen to 36 people, and 11,000 people were flown off the island of Maui yesterday. Joining us now is Dustin Kaliopu. He and his family escaped their home with literally just the clothes on their back. And I understand, Dustin, along with your 82-year-old grandmother, is that right? Grandfather. Grandfather. What was it like? It, it all happened very quickly. We knew that the wind was bad and we could smell the smoke. It started before noon. The power went out. The telephone, the radio, internet, all of our connection was lost. And that's not uncommon for the infrastructure that we have in Lahaina whenever there's a storm like that. Um, but I made my way home that morning, yesterday morning, to check in on Grandpa. He was fine, everything was fine, just a bit windy, no electricity. By 3.30 in the afternoon, the fire that had started a few miles above us, up on the mountaintop, had made its way down toward our home and then crossed its way over the highway to the condominium across the street from us. And in an hour, our neighbor's yard was on fire, the smoke was filling our house, and we had no choice but to evacuate. We had no time to grab anything. We lost our kitten in the process of evacuating and honestly we're grateful to my brother who returned home to retrieve my grandmother's urn before he left to evacuate as well and uh do you know have you confirmed that the, the home is is lost my dad was able to make his way home before he evacuated and met up with us the home is lost i can say everything in lahaina is completely gone the aerial footage that i wish i could have shared with you this morning 
it was completely devastating to see when we woke up, seeing what our town had transformed into just overnight. Everyone that I know and love, everyone that I'm related to, that I communicate with, my colleagues, friends, family, we're all homeless. Thousands of people are homeless in Lahaina and hundreds, if not at least a thousand, are still missing and unaccounted for. And we're hoping that the death toll does not rise too much higher once it's confirmed. Dustin, I'm so sorry. I mean, losing everything and not knowing where everyone that you know um, even is right now. What was it like for you to escape? I understand it took hours in a car just to get to safety. Six, two and a half hours, uh, which is usually a 30 minute drive. Um, in the span of the day, I'd gotten up maybe nine or 10 o'clock in the morning. I slept in because I was off. I had no contact with my mom. I knew she was okay. She had no power. My brother had gone to visit her. So I just went home to my house, made sure my grandfather was okay. We had made our way all the way to the other side of the island to safety, um, met up at an airport hotel lobby, just as a safe place where we knew we could find each other. That's when we learned that our house was gone. My mom's house was gone. My brother's house was gone. Everything was set ablaze, but still no contact with lots of our family members. And it wasn't until actually now, yesterday, that um, I was able to get in touch with my mom after over 24 hours of no contact with family members. They were able to regain cell service and we were able to put the pieces back together. So you've got cell service now. You've got confirmation about uh, your family members. Are there still people, your friends, your extended relatives, um, whom you have not confirmed uh, that they're safe, that they made it out? Absolutely. I have extended family, my grandmother, my uncle, my friends, family members um, that we're looking for. We're hoping, I'm hoping at least if they see this broadcast at a shelter somewhere to know, to get to safety and to contact us. But so many people have gone missing. And I will say that it is an unspoken fact that the death toll is way higher than 36. And we just hope that it's not confirmed to be, like I said, too much higher than that number. But there, there was a mass casualty event that happened this week. Our hearts are with you all. Uh, Dustin, thank you. Please stay safe. Thank you. Well, the politics soon to of Trump's co-defendants in the classified documents case, they'll appear in a Florida courtroom ahead what we're expecting. Breaking overnight, a presidential candidate in Ecuador has been assassinated. We now have footage that appears to show the moment that he was fatally shot. Before we play it, though, a warning, it is disturbing to see. Fernando Villavicencio was killed as he was leaving a campaign rally north of the capital city of Quito. He has been an outspoken critic against corruption and violence in the South American nation. Let's get right to our colleague and CNN correspondent, Rafael Romo. He was so outspoken, Rafael, about putting an end to organized crime. And the president is vowing that his killing won't go unpunished. What else do we know? That's right. Poppy Victor, good morning. The attack happened right after the presidential candidate had finished the rally at a school in Quito, Ecuador's capital. According to campaign aides contacted by CNN in a video that appears to show the moment of the attack, 
All of a sudden, a burst of gunfire was heard as he was getting into a waiting vehicle. Several people were hit by the bullets, including Fernando Villavicencio, a 59-year-old activist, journalist, and politician who was running in Ecuador's presidential elections to be held in less than two weeks on August 20th. As Villavicencio gets in the back seat of the vehicle, at least 12 gunshots can be heard. A policeman quickly closes the door behind Villavicencio, and many people are seen taking cover from the gunfire, including his security detail. The Ecuadorian Attorney General's office later said that at least nine people were injured in the attack, including a candidate for the National Assembly and two police officers. Current Ecuadorian President Guillermo Lasso later said on social media that he's outraged and shocked. He called the attack an assassination. Lasso also expressed solidarity and sent his condolences to Villavicencio's wife and daughters. He also vowed that this crime will not go unpunished. Lasso acknowledged that organized crime has come a long way in his country. But at the same time, he promised that the full weight of the law will fall on them, meaning the criminals. In an interview with CNN in Espanol, Papi and Victor, back in May, Villavicencio said that drug traffickers had already made themselves at home in Ecuador, polluting the entire nation's since at least 2007 and calling his own country a narco state run by a political mafia. And finally, the Ecuadorian government says the August 20th election will still go on as planned. Back to you. Rafael Roma, thank you very much for the reporting. This morning, sources tell CNN that Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis is expected to seek charges against more than 12 people. The latest on that and Trump's other legal cases. We also have more on this bombshell new ProPublica reporting detailing Clarence, Justice Clarence Thomas's lavish life off the Supreme Court bench and who funded it. More CNN this morning to come after the break. This morning, two of Donald Trump's co-defendants in the classified documents case are scheduled to appear in court in Fort Pierce, Florida. Walt Nada, Trump's body man, and Carlos de Oliveira, the property manager at Mar-a-Lago. Both are charged with helping Trump obstruct the Justice Department's investigation into classified documents that were stored at the resort. Now, we're also learning that Trump and some of his allies could soon face charges in Georgia over the alleged effort to overturn the 2020 election results there. Sources tell CNN that Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis is expected to seek charges against more than 12 people. Joining us now, White House correspondent for Reuters, Jeff Mason, and CNN senior, senior legal analyst and former assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, Ellie Honig. Welcome to you both. Ellie, let me start with you. 12 people in Georgia. Um, racketeering? It's got to be. I mean, all the reporting is that Fonnie Willis, the DA, is looking at charging racketeering here. And that tells me she's taking a very broad view of this case. Twelve people, by the way, is yeah. really alarming. I mean, when I, not alarming, but it's, it's a big number for a case but like this. But that's what the special grand jury foreman told us a couple of months ago, is that there was going to yes. be a large number of people. No, that's true. The, yeah. the, the grand jury, special grand jury foreperson mm -hmm. did say. I mean, what this tells me is, think about just for perspective— Jack Smith has thus far charged one person, exactly. named six co-conspirators. That's for the nationwide scheme. Fonnie Willis is now going to indict over a dozen people for Georgia alone. Now, that could be because she's focused on some of the more local officials who wouldn't necessarily be on Jack Smith's radar. But it is clear to me every piece of signaling that we've seen publicly has indicated that she is going to approach this very broadly, very aggressively. But one thing I just want to flag for everyone, the indictment is the easy part. 
Right? Mm. When you're a prosecutor, it's not hard to get an indictment of essentially whoever you want as long as you have some basis of proof. She's writing a big check. We'll see if she can cash it. Right. The bar is so much higher when you go to Oh, court. No, no comparison. Jeff, what's really interesting to me about this Georgia probe is how much we know about it already. Yeah. Victor mentioned what the four-person said a few months ago. Mm-hmm. We know what Fannie Willis said on camera a week ago. We're ready to go, right? We've done our work. We're ready to go. Uh, th- then we learn that we're now looking at something very large with 12. It's just we didn't know anything about with Jack Smith. And it's been interesting with Georgia this whole time. I mean, politically, based on the reporting that we got early on after President Trump's initial phone calls, that this has been a weakness, a vulnerability for him the entire time. And now it's kind of all coming to fruition. And it's interesting to see the different parts. You've got Jack Smith not focusing on a bunch of people. You have this local uh, prosecutor focusing on, on several. But you're absolutely right. Like, we've kind of seen it coming. And the former president even said, uh, I think just if, within the last few days, I expect a fourth indictment yeah. uh, soon. Carlos de Oliveira and Walt Nada today. What are we expecting? We know there had been some challenges getting uh, Florida attorneys for these bend. What's going to happen today? So the routine part is there will be an arraignment on the new charges that have been added, right? Carlos de Oliveira was added to the superseding, the second indictment, and there are three new charges against Donald Trump. That's the easy part. The the critical part that's going to be more hotly contested is what happens with the trial date, because Mm. as of now, that trial's set for May of 2024. You can bet that the lawyers for all three defendants, including Donald Trump, are going to argue, well, the government has now brought new charges. They've added this new defendant. We need more time. We need to essentially restart the clock. I don't know how that's going to come out. This is strictly within the discretion of the trial court judge, Judge Cannon here. And I will say, whenever you're a prosecutor and you supersede, you bring a new indictment, you have to understand, you do understand the risk that that poses to any trial date. That's just the sort of flip side of the coin of any superseding indictment. I'm totally fascinated by what we learned about the fact that Jack Smith, the special counsel, got this search warrant for Twitter. Mm. And there was this whole back and forth about what Twitter, Elon Musk, could tell former President Trump, what he couldn't. There was a fine because he was late. Twitter was late in getting, X was late in getting this stuff to Jack Smith's team. But it's obviously, Jeff, they don't need the tweets. The tweets are out there. So what were they looking for? We were just talking about that before coming on set. I mean, for most of the public, we all know what went through President Trump's mind during the time that he was in office. As a White House reporter, you always knew what was going on because he would tell you. So you have to first ask, why do they need to get this from Twitter at all or from X? But as we were discussing, there are a lot more things that that could be in those records that we wouldn't see publicly. Drafts. And I know from my reporting covering him the, the entire time he was in the White House, they would draft tweets. He would, he would say tweets. He would give tweet ideas to his staff, and they would put them together. So there's got to be a wealth of knowledge there alone. There are direct messages, a bunch of stuff like that that, that could be useful. Yeah, the fact that they went by search warrant tells me it absolutely was more than just his public tweets. You wouldn't need but to do what? a search warrant. Well, I think Jeff exactly said it. Drafts. Uh, was he draft. using the DM function, right? Mm-hmm. Even maybe search functions. You can get a lot. By the way, draft emails, draft memos are super valuable. Look at the January 6th report, the committee report from Congress. They make all sorts of mention of draft memos because yeah. they give you an insight into what a person was thinking before it sort of went through the whole vetting process. And not just the drafts uh, that weren't published, but if the tweets were actually published, were they drafted days before? Right. Were they oh, written yeah, anticipating that there would be some need for some mm. of these things? So On January 6th alone, we know that they were going back and forth about what to say. Yeah. And different people were advising him on what to say and what to do. So 
I don't know what those drafts might be, but I would think that that day alone would have a wealth. All right. Ellie, Jeff, thank you. Next, we're going to take you back live to Hawaii, where wildfires are scorching land in Maui and on the Big Island. The death toll has risen to 36 overnight. Our breaking news coverage continues. I was the last one off the dock when the firestorm came through the banyan tree and took everything with it. And I just ran out to the beach and I ran south and I just helped everybody I could along the way. Phillies pitcher Michael Lorenzen has thrown a no-hitter in just his second start with the team. It's his first in front of home fans. Now, Lorenzen's gem is the fourth no-hitter of the baseball season. That's the most by a pitcher in a no-hitter since 2019. Now, he had thrown 100 pitches through seven innings. Lorenzen's mom and wife and daughter, you see him there huddled up, praying. This is the ninth with two outs. Lorenzen getting Dominic Smith to pop out the center to end the game. You see his teammates running to the field. Got it. You see the fans celebrating, celebrating with the team. And, of course, after that, his family runs to celebrate. Don't let other people tell you what you can and can't do. And that's, man, I, I worked insanely hard to, to make this dream come true. Um, I've watched every single one of Nolan Ryan's no-hitters because I've, I've always wanted to throw a no-hitter. And the fact that I just... I did it in front of this fan base. I, I can't believe it. Good for him. I've seen the, the video of, you know, the, everybody crying there in the stands. Uh, it's got to feel good when you do it in front it. of family. Absolutely. No better place than home. All right, CNN This Morning continues right now. Morning, everyone. Glad you're with us on a very busy news morning with breaking news. Victor Blackwell by my side. And just a ton happening overnight. Let's get to five things to know this Thursday. August 10th, 36 people are confirmed dead in devastating wildfires in Hawaii. The flames charring hundreds of buildings. Black Hawk helicopters have been deployed as paradise is burning. Brand new reporting just out this morning on now, out now about Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, his luxurious lifestyle, and who was funding it. ProPublica reports that rich benefactors footed the bill for at least 38 luxury vacations, 26 private jet flights, and a dozen VIP passes to sporting events. More breaking news, a presidential candidate in Ecuador assassinated at a rally, and a warning this video is disturbing. The anti... The anti-corruption candidate was killed just 10 days before the election. New video coming in overnight of a deadly FBI raid. A man was killed after making threats against President Biden and other elected officials. And new information in the Atlanta area investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Sources tell CNN that prosecutor Fonnie Willis is seeking more than a dozen indictments as former President Trump releases a new ad attacking her. CNN This Morning starts right now. This is CNN Breaking News. Good morning, everyone. It is 7 a.m. here out east, 4 a.m. on the West Coast. Victor Blackwell is with us, and we are starting with this breaking news in Hawaii. Catastrophic and unprecedented wildfires have now killed at least 36 people. The death toll in Maui has soared overnight, as sadly they are recovering bodies this morning. This helicopter video shows the scale of the devastation in Lahaina. It is a historic town and a popular tropical getaway that has been reduced to ashes. People were jumping into the ocean there, 
trying to escape this fast-moving inferno. The flames were fueled in part by powerful winds from a hurricane. Take a look at this video obtained by our local affiliate. You can see hurricane-force winds whipping palm trees and explosions as a marina and boats go up in flames. This is what the devastation looks like on the ground. Entire neighborhood here wiped out. The homes, the businesses, they're gone. Listen to this survivor whose house burned to the ground. He describes the situation. Still get dead bodies in the water floating and on the seawall. They've been sitting there since last night. We've been pulling people out since last night, trying to save people's lives. And I feel like we're not getting the help we need. This is a nationwide issue at this point. Yeah, we need help, a lot of help. We gotta get people down here. Veronica Miracle joins us live uh, in Hawaii, in Maui specifically, where it's just past one in the morning. Walk us through what you're hearing, you're reporting on the ground there as you wait for the sun to come up. Well, Poppy and Victor, those new death toll numbers coming in overnight. So many people here in Maui will be waking up to the fact that 36 of their community members, loved ones, friends have died. Information has been slowly trickling in because there are still 11,000 people without power, their communication lines down. And so it's been very difficult. A lot of people over on this side of the island here in Maui experiencing a sense of helplessness as they wait to learn what else has happened. Oh my gosh, look at the harbor. The view from above is of shock and heartbreak. Oh my gosh. We were not prepared for what we saw. It looked like an area that had been bombed in the war. Wildfires rampaging across the island of Maui. Our entire street was burned to the ground. Decimating homes and businesses. Local people have lost everything. They've lost their house, they've lost their animals, and it's, it's devastating. Lahaina is on fire. The historic town of Lahaina, a popular tourist and economic hub on the island's west side, particularly affected with hundreds of structures impacted. It happened so fast. People stuck in traffic trying to get out, and they're, they're slain on, on both sides of the road, like something out of a, a horror movie. Most of the fires on Maui fueled in part by violent winds caused by Hurricane Dora, churning more than 800 miles away. Those winds now subsiding as the storm pushes away. The primary focus is to save lives and then to prevent human suffering and to mitigate great property loss. State Department crews assisting in efforts to restore communication across the islands and distribute water. With military helicopters aiding in extinguishing the fires. Two CH-47 supporting Maui County. They flew 13 hours, did 58 drops and about 150,000 uh, gallons of water to, uh, to assist with su suppression of the fire. Recovery will be a long road ahead, according to Hawaii's Lieutenant Governor Sylvia Luke. The damage to the infrastructure, it's not just um, buildings. I mean, these were small businesses that invested in Maui. These were local residents. And, uh, you know, we need to figure out a way to help a lot of people in the next several years. And that fire in Lahaina, one of three fires burning on the island that firefighters are grappling and contending with. Meanwhile, at the airport, airlines are offering more flights and reduced fares to get people off of the island. Officials are asking people to leave and not come here so they can save resources for those who need it.
Poppy, Victor, Veronica Miracle, thank you for being on the ground and for that reporting. We are new this morning learning new details about Clarence Thomas's, the Supreme Court justice, his life off the Supreme Court bench. This morning, ProPublica broke a new report detailing lavish vacations, private jet trips and VIP treatment at sporting events, all funded by several billionaire friends. Let's bring in our colleague Tom Foreman to explain. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. You know, public support in the polls for the Supreme Court has really been dropping faith in the court. People just are not convinced that it's operating the way it ought to. And this report will not help. The most complete accounting yet of the high life of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas shows much, much more than previously known. More private jets, more fancy vacations, more sporting events, all gifts from mega rich businessmen and documented through public and private records, plus interviews by ProPublica. Justice Thomas has been living a life of extreme luxury for 30 years, underwritten by at least four different ultra wealthy benefactors. Earlier reports have revealed lavish gifts to Thomas, including a house for his mother and this nine-day vacation in Indonesia from conservative billionaire Harlan Crow. I've come from regular stock. Who also underwrote a film about Thomas's humble taste. I prefer the RV parks. Now the list of benefactors includes three more names, according to ProPublica, David Sokol, Wayne Huizinga, and Tony Novelli. The report says the four moguls collectively treated Thomas to 38 destination vacations, including a previously unreported voyage on a yacht around the Bahamas, 26 private jet flights, plus an additional eight by helicopter, a dozen VIP passes to professional and college sporting events, two stays at luxury resorts in Florida and Jamaica, and one standing invitation to an uber-exclusive golf club. The dollar value, likely in the millions, little of which appeared in required financial disclosures, according to ProPublica. Thomas has previously said he didn't feel the need to disclose some gifts, and that worries Jeremy Fogel, an expert on judicial ethics and a former judge. I simply couldn't have done this, and even if the people involved didn't have interest before the court, uh, it's it's just the, the... idea that you are receiving gifts of this magnitude. Associate justices make about $285,000 a year. In 2001, when they made about 100000 less, Thomas spoke up. The job is not worth doing for what they pay. It's not worth doing for the grief, but it is worth doing for the principle. Now he bristles at questions about his principles. He calls Crow merely a friend. Crow says they never talk about Thomas's work, and the new report found none of these wealthy pals seem to have had cases before the court. Still, which one of these new benefactors, uh, just like Harlan Crow, came into his life after he was appointed to the Supreme Court? That's why it's so problematic from an ethics standpoint. I'll point out Wayne Huizinga died about five years ago. So this has been going on for quite a long time. There's no evidence that these rich friends broke any rules or laws in giving these gifts. And it is not entirely clear technically if Clarence Thomas broke any rules by, by accepting them right now. But what has happened here, the earlier revelations really raised a public furor over the idea that there should be strict 
and clear rules about what the Supreme Court justices can and can't accept. And no doubt that drumbeat is going to get a lot louder now. Tom Foreman, thank you. Certainly is. All right, joining us at the table now is one of the ProPublica reporters behind this investigation, Brett Murphy, also with the CNN senior legal analyst, Ellie Honig, and CNN political analyst and national politics reporter for The New York Times, Ested Herndon. Um, Brett, let me start with you. This is more than, of course, what we learned earlier this year, this relationship with Harlan Crow. That was, I guess it some could have said, a, an uncomfortable or inappropriate relationship with one person. 38 vacations, 26 private jet flights, and the sporting events. This seems like a lifestyle. Yeah, for about 30 years now, this has been consistent, steady access to things most people will never know. Private jet flights, yacht vacations, luxury suites at sporting events, year in and year out, time and again. And when you say most people will never know, you write uh, for ProPublica that this is almost certainly an undercount. That's right. Yeah, we're still reporting and there's there's evidence that there may be many more. Uh, so we're being conservative now with our figures, but we're still reporting on it. Uh, more than 100 people you interviewed for just just this. Um, tell people how you found all of this out. Yeah. So, you know, this is a, a kind of classic uh, daisy chain where you talk to one source who knows three others. But we were reaching out to anyone we could. Uh, flight attendants, pilots. Uh, drivers, chauffeurs, security guards, anyone who might uh, be in the inner circles of some of these ultra-wealthy benefactors, and then people in the Supreme Court world and in Thomas's world as well, trying to get the fullest picture we could. And just before we bring in the team, one of the things that I was struck by and people shouldn't understand is that Justice Thomas has often talked about living not a lavish life, whether it's in a documentary that was done on him or things that he said about, you know, basically I don't do this job for the money, Right. So he has put forward to the public, has he not, um, a more, much more humble lifestyle? He has, yeah. He's, he's uh, kind of created that image and said multiple times, even in his relationship with Heisinga, Wayne Heisinga, he said, you know, we just like to sit on the front porch and talk and drink iced tea. Uh, but that's not, that's not what happened. He's been, he's been flown around on Heisinga's jet, taken to the sporting events, taken to his luxury golf club. Uh, so he says one thing, but the reporting shows other things. So, Ellie, um, uh, ProPublica reports, and Tom just covered in his report, that Heisinga, Sokol, and Novelli um, had no uh, legal cases before the Supreme Court during this documented relationship. How should that inform, if at all, how people consume what's being reported? It shouldn't matter at all, because... The point here is the appearance of impropriety. The fact that we wouldn't know, by the way, about any of this if not for ProPublica, and your, your publication deserves real credit for, for blowing the lid off of this, but how does Clarence Thomas think the world actually works? Like, we all have friends. Do any of your friends pay for your private vacations? It's unheard of. And the reason is this is a problem is it undermines public confidence, rightly so. We all ask, I think, logically, why on earth are these guys spending millions of dollars, according to your reporting? Why is he accepting this? Why isn't he reporting it? And when you see these polls that show that the American people's confidence is at an all-time low in the Supreme Court, I don't think it's necessarily because of the judicial outcomes they're delivering. People will always disagree on that. I think it's because we're now learning more than ever about just all the money flowing through here and all the lack of disclosure and transparency. Yeah. I mean, I think that that type of 
the Supreme Court has existed in this kind of vaunted place where there wasn't this type of scrutiny that was really applied to some of these justices. And I think that really matters for the public perception here. We're increasingly seeing a public that's dealing with the reality that these Supreme Court justices are, are experiencing this influx of money, are, are so close to these kind of billionaires. And I think that appearance of impropriety has really set in. So when you see kind of public reacting and that, that lack of trust really building up, I do think it's a buildup of some of these type of things. Now, it goes along with judicial outcomes, I would say, mm-hmm. also. But just the feeling that the Supreme Court has existed in a place that was outside of scrutiny and, more importantly, can't really do anything about it, right? Like, that's yeah. the other thing that's right. come out from this, is that it's not leading to an outcome that, that I think a lot of folks would expect when there's been such clear reporting. If I can build on that, just whenever there has been an effort to enforce some sort of accountability, the response from the Supreme Court has been galling, yeah. right? A couple months ago, the U.S. Senate invited Chief Justice Roberts to come testify. Hey, we'd like to know what your ethical rules are and is there any way we might be able to pass legislation? And Chief Justice Roberts responded with a condescending two or four page letter where he basically said, first of all, allow me to correct some misperceptions. They like to blame the media for Mm -hmm. fostering misperceptions rather than actually transparency, which you all are, are accounting. And then he says, yes, we know we consult with, we're not bound by, but we consult with various sources. And it was just this blow off. And you wonder why people have no faith in them. I was just you mentioned in your report that the late Justice Ginsburg and also Stephen Breyer had also taken trips or done things funded by wealthy people, but they'd been disclosed. That's a really important distinction. That's a really I just want to make that distinction. Okay. the other question I have is, you know, yes, they may not have had cases before the court, but they ran huge companies in huge industries, whether you talk about David Sokol or whether you talk about Hazinga, that had interest in the outcome of other court cases that would set the law that would affect their industry. That's a really important point, too. These are massive industries. They work in oil, oil, energy, international shipping. Uh, Mergers and acquisitions kind of define a lot of their empires. Mm -hmm. So the idea that they could be totally separated from what's happening in the Supreme Court uh, is not true, even, you know, just because they didn't and have a direct case. I thought it was interesting that David Sokol might be a familiar name to people. He used to work for uh, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. He was sort of seen as maybe the heir apparent before he left in 2011, then went on to run this other big energy company. In just in October, he gave this speech where he criticized President Biden's uh, student loan forgiveness program and said it was going to be overturned by the court. He was talking about ongoing cases that Clarence Thomas was going to decide on. Yeah, we found that really interesting. It was one of the first times we had seen one of these benefactors speaking directly to an ongoing uh, Supreme Court case before there had been a decision. He was pontificating on the outcome. It was common legal commentary at the time. He wasn't breaking a lot of new ground, but we found that very interesting, yeah. Control room, let's pull this up. I just want to make sure uh, that the court, neither the court nor Justice Thomas responded Mm -hmm. to this latest reporting, but I do want to read what he said after uh, the reporting uh, in April. He said that early in my tenure at the court, I sought guidance from my colleagues and others in the judiciary and was advised that this sort of personal hospitality from close personal friends who did not have business before the court was not reportable. Now, that was after the reporting about Harlan Crow. Again, no response to this reporting, but I want to make sure that we got uh, his word in uh, on this uh, conversation as well. Uh, Gentlemen, thank you very much for that. A man accused of threatening to assassinate President Biden is killed by FBI agents. We have new details this morning about who he was and what led to this deadly standoff. Plus, a presidential candidate in Ecuador assassinated at a rally. We will show you how it happened and what we know about the assassin. 
More CNN This Morning to come after the break. So this morning, we're learning more about a Utah man who was fatally shot by the FBI after he allegedly made threats to assassinate President Biden. That's the sound of a flashbang, not a gunshot. Officials say that Craig Robertson pointed a gun at agents as they served a warrant in Provo on Wednesday, just ahead of Biden's arrival for a campaign event there. CNN also obtained court documents revealing graphic threats like this one against the president and others. And this, quote, I hear Biden is coming to Utah and that he was, quote, cleaning the dust off his M24 sniper rifle. Our Josh Campbell joins us now with more. These are such specific threats, such targets, not just against the president, but against the attorney general, Merrick Garland, the Manhattan district attorney, uh, Gavin Newsom, governor of California. I could go on and on. And yet the FBI, what happened? I mean, they knew they were tracking all of this before. Yeah, good morning, Poppy. An astonishing series of events yesterday. The suspect was under federal investigation for allegedly making these threats against President Biden. And as you mentioned, a host of other prominent Democratic officials. Now, prior to the president's arrival in Utah yesterday, the FBI secured an arrest warrant. They go to the suspect's home in an attempt to take him into custody. I'm told from a law enforcement source that as the SWAT team was giving him commands, the suspect then brandished a weapon towards those agents, a fatal decision. As President Joe Biden was heading to Utah on Wednesday evening, FBI special agents tried to arrest a Utah man they said was making threats against the president. When they arrived at his residence in the early hours Wednesday, FBI SWAT agents said he pointed a gun at them while they were giving him commands. There was a big boom, and then there was another one, and another one, and another one. And um, I thought that their house was on fire because there was smoke and um, red lights. That was the moment FBI special agents shot and killed Craig Robertson. Some neighbors described what they heard and saw. And there was just like a lot of shouting, a lot of just kind of loud bangs because I think they were trying to get him to wake up and trying to um, go ahead and like get him out of his house. I found out later from my next door neighbor that um, my neighbor here had died. They saw him dead in the driveway. Robertson was already under FBI surveillance and facing three federal charges, according to a complaint from the U.S. attorney. Among them, making disturbing threats against the president. In one threat, Robertson wrote, I hear Biden is coming to Utah and that he was going to dust off the M24 sniper rifle. This was someone who they were already very concerned about. And then he started talking about acting out against the president on this trip. I'm sure that raised everyone's concern to the absolute highest levels. Other charges included influencing, impeding and retaliating against federal law enforcement officers by threat. In recent months, Robertson also posted multiple threats against other Democratic politicians and prosecutors who have brought cases against former president and now Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump. Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan district attorney, was one of those prosecutors Robertson was allegedly targeting. In one of his posts, he wrote, heading to New York to fulfill my dream of eradicating another two-bit political hack DA. In another Facebook post, Robertson said that he was getting ready for the election in 2024 and that he had guns in his house. Guns and other potential evidence, which may now be in the hands of law enforcement, for further review. 
Now, guys, we live in this heightened threat environment. Federal law enforcement has warned about it. You know, there's all kinds of vitriol online. That's the challenge for agencies like the FBI, trying to sort out who are just these so-called keyboard commandos, those who are spouting off, and those who may actually pose a threat. This suspect's social media uh, history, you look through it, a lot of these vile, deadly uh, threats against these officials, and now we see the FBI going to try to take him into custody, the suspect pull, pulling a weapon on those agents. Just as troubling as we look into 2024, you know, I was looking online, there are some cor fringe corners that are already lionizing this guy, calling him a victim, saying that the FBI assassinated him, uh, despite the circumstances that we've described there. And again, that is the challenge. Law enforcement on the lookout for others who uh, might uh, pose a danger. We've seen in the past folks, uh, people attacking FBI field offices, people attacking law enforcement. And as we move into the next presidential election cycle in earnest, this is something that federal law enforcement will certainly be on the lookout for. People that are online who may have not only the intent to cause harm, but also the capability, guys. The, the ability. Josh, thanks very much. Yeah. The Fulton County DA is responding to what she says is a derogatory and false ad by the Trump campaign. We have new developments in her case against the former president. Also, the special counsel investigating Trump secured a search warrant of former President Trump's Twitter account earlier this year. What were they looking for? We'll tell you all about it ahead. We're learning more this morning about the sheer scope of the Georgia 2020 election interference case involving President Trump and his associates. Sources tell us that Fulton County DA Fannie Willis is expected to seek indictments against more than a dozen people when she presents her case before a grand jury. That's going to happen next week. CNN's Nick Valencia joins us live from uh, Atlanta. Nick, 12 people potentially, huge number. What do we know? Yeah, good morning, Victor. We know that Fonnie Willis has been eyeing potential racketeering charges or a potential RICO indictment, which would allow her to bring a case against multiple defendants. And look, this is more than just about Trump's infamous phone call to Georgia's Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger after Trump lost Georgia in 2020, in which he asked Raffensperger to find more votes. This is about a pressure campaign from Trump operatives on Georgia lawmakers, Fulton County election workers. This is about an effort to subvert the Electoral College by a slate of fake electors that tried to claim that Trump won Georgia when really it was Biden that won. And this is about the illegal accessing of voting systems in the Trump-friendly rural county here in Georgia of Coffee County. This investigation, since it started over a year ago, is taking a lot of twists and turns, but there seems to be multiple indications that it's nearing its end. Sources familiar with the matter tell us that Fonnie Willis, the DA here leading the investigation, plans to present her case to the grand jury uh, sometime next week. That presentation could take up to two days. Victor, we, Poppy. We also know that she has had to increase security around her. Why? Yeah, you know, Trump, uh, Trump's rhetoric, it's been quite colorful and explosive, and he's at it again with the new ad. You know, previously, uh, Fonnie Willis has said that Trump's rhetoric has played into the heightened tense uh, you know, situation involving security concerns. We know now that she's been having to make changes to her own pers uh, personal security. Trump has called her a racist, has encouraged his uh, followers to, and his supporters to come out and protest here. He said that this is politically motivated. Uh, we're seeing those security changes around the courthouse as well, more barricades up as we prepare for potential fourth arrest and indictment of Trump, as well as yeah. potentially some of the biggest names in his orbit. Guys. Nick Valencia, thanks for all that reporting. I said Herndon, Ellie Honig back at the table with us. Good morning, guys. Good to have you. Ellie, I just want to start on what you've seen of Trump, because you were at this rally in um, South Carolina. And 
You note how he's using these indictments, maybe soon to be four, to his political benefit. Yeah. But that the man himself seems weighted down by it and his supporters could feel it. Yeah, definitely. I think both of those things are really palpably true. I was in Columbia, South Carolina, what's called their Silver Elephant Dinner. So this is their big fundraiser for the state party where Trump was the speaker. That itself was a kind of sign, right? And this was supposed to be a competitive primary. You're supposed to kind of see all the different candidates have kind of representation there among the party faithful. This was all Trump. And so the event had been kind of organized around him. And it was really a kind of group of people who were there to encourage him against these indictments. And so you not only had the indictments really rallying people to his cause, they were actually seeing that as a reason that it would help him secure back the White House. Now, Trump kind of does his thing, the thing that we expect in each of these speeches. But when you talk to people after, they kind of notice that this is a more reserved Donald Trump. (laughs) And on the kind of Donald Trump scale, of course. But they're saying, like, you know, that he's not necessarily coming at things in the same way. He did actually mention the 2020 election and kind of claims of a stolen election. He's only focusing his energy on attacking those DAs and the kind of forward-looking nature. And so the folks are rallying around him because of that, but they're also noticing a kind of candidate who's not having necessarily as much fun as Donald Trump used to be on the trail. I think that that is the reason why we've seen this political and legal strategy completely bend. It is increasingly clear to those, uh, uh, increasingly merge. It's increasingly clear to the people around Donald Trump that his route back to the White House is paramount for him to even to, to subvert these legal charges. It might be the only way he gets away with that. Yeah. Let me add some clarity to an image we just showed where um, uh, Nick was talking about this ad against yes. um, Fonnie Willis. And we showed the fraud squad with those five faces. We have it up now. We can show it again. This is from the Donald Trump ad. That graphic that was placed on it, that's from the Donald Trump television ad. Um, we're not going to show it, but this is what he's running. As we have reported on Craig Robertson, uh, this man mm-hmm. who uh, yep. in Utah... Uh, was shot and killed by FBI agents. I want to make sure we just put that up and didn't talk about it. I want to be clear about that. When he mentioned those pro- uh, those prosecutors at this event, folks yeah. chanted traitors. You yeah. know, this is the level of energy here that's really building around this stuff. Yeah, look, we have to call it out every time. He's done it dating back to the Mueller investigation, singling out not just Robert Mueller, but individual prosecutors, investigators against him. This is the playbook. There are real consequences. We see warnings of it every day. They're right to be concerned about their security. It's mm-hmm. a shame. It's a travesty that this is happening to our justice system. But this is what the rhetoric entails. Let me ask you about um, a request from Walt Nada, who's going to be in court today in, res- in response to the superseding indictment related to obstruction of justice. He's arguing that he should be allowed to review the classified evidence in special counsel Jack Smith's Mar-a-Lago. This is the document case. Uh, Attorneys say, the the prosecutors say that your charges are related to obstruction, not to the willful retention. Um, Where do you fall on that? Should, is there any need for him to actually have access to the documents? So this is an interesting debate because ordinarily if a defendant in a case as Walt Nauta is, uh, wants to see discovery, you get it. No questions asked. You want, as a prosecutor, to facilitate the defendant seeing everything possible. Of course, this is classified information. And the counter-argument there is Walt Nott is actually not charged in any of the document counts. He's only charged with obstruction. And so I think prosecutors rightly are saying, why does he need to see it? If there's some specific reason why seeing these documents relating to war plans, relating to national security, if there's some reason that would impact Walt Nauta's defense on obstruction charges, I think I would say as a prosecutor, tell us how that connects. And if it doesn't, then no, you don't get to just check out these classified documents. All right, Ellie, Ested, thank you. Thank you.
More of our breaking news this morning out of Hawaii. The death toll in Maui soaring overnight to 36. The wildfires continue there. We're going to be joined next by the White House's John Kirby to talk about the federal response. Welcome back. At least 36 people are confirmed dead as an unprecedented wildfire rages in Hawaii. And President Biden is sending in military help. Blackhawk, Chinook and U.S. Navy helicopters have been deployed to fight the fires and rescue stranded people. Joining us now, National Security Council Coordinator for Strategic Communications at the White House, John Kirby. John, good morning and thank you for being with us. We did hear from the governor of Hawaii late last night, just before midnight on CNN, telling our colleague Sarah Seidner that Hawaii is seeking a presidential emergency declaration. Will Hawaii get that? You know, we're working very closely with uh, Hawaii, Hawaiian officials. As you said, we're also deploying some military assets. FEMA personnel are on the ground. Uh, we're going we're gonna to focus on this as, as keenly and as sharply as we can. I don't have anything to announce with respect to an emergency declaration, but I think it's, it's just clear. It's just clear. Uh, that more and more wildfires are happening and raging all across the country. We've yeah. got almost 5,000 federal personnel deployed fighting wildfires everywhere. Uh, look, I want you to listen to a resident. Here, when I heard from him earlier this morning on the program, I was stunned. This is a resident from West Maui. Still get dead bodies in the water floating and on the seawall. They've been sitting there since last night. We've been pulling people out since last night, trying to save people's lives. And I feel like we're not getting the help we need. This is a nationwide issue at this point. Yeah, we need help. A lot of help. We got to get people down here. And that's just one example, right? You've got 36 yeah. people at least dead overnight in these fires. The death toll expected to go up. We've seen the president this week focusing on climate. We've seen how it has devastated our country, especially this summer. People are feeling it. Will the president declare a national emergency on climate, John? The president uh, hasn't made a decision yet on declaring a, a national emergency on climate, uh, Poppy. But for all intents and purposes, uh, he's treating this with all the due gravity and the seriousness uh, that the climate crisis deserves. I mean, it's been a focus for him uh, since day one. Well, how much worse does it need to get to declare it a national emergency? Well, look, I don't want to get ahead of the president or his decision making here. All I can tell you is that as an administration, we're going to stay focused on the climate crisis. Uh, it is front and center. It is right in front of us. And these wildfires and all the uh, severe storms that were that we continue to see are definitely caused as a result of, uh, of what's going on in, 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 the, in the rising temperature across across the globe. And so we've got to treat this seriously. And look, uh, the, as the president said, even on this trip, uh, in addition to setting aside land at the Grand, uh, Grand Canyon National Park, also uh, working with companies to develop uh, more clean energy technology, more clean energy industry, and moving the nation in that transition. It's going to take some time. But uh, in everything that the president's been doing, literally since day one, he, he's been focused on trying to make sure that we can lead the okay. world uh, in terms of dealing with the climate crisis. But you say you don't want to get ahead of the president. That indicates to me it is more likely than not he will. I'm not I'm not uh, making a speculation one right. way or the other, Poppy. All I'm right. just not going to speak to the president's decision making on that. Fair enough. Let's move to Ukraine. You did a really interesting interview with my colleague Wolf Blitzer a few days ago. And you said, look, even the Ukrainians, including President Zelensky, have said that their this counteroffensive is not going as far or as fast as he would like. You talked about the progress yeah. being, in your words, quote, slow and not without difficulties. What happens, John, if the Ukrainians do not make significant gains in this counteroffensive pretty soon? 
Well, look, I think they understand that uh, time is not on their side. The, the weather's good right now in the summer. It's, it's going to change in the fall and make it harder for them uh, to maneuver on the ground and certainly uh, to operate uh, uh, drones and, and, and air defense systems uh, in the airspace over Ukraine. They understand that. Uh, they're also running into the teeth of a well-armed, well-entrenched Russian defensive uh, set of formations. Um, and they are doing the best they can to kind of get through that. I think we shouldn't speculate or try to get ahead of what their operations might look like or what success looks like. They get to determine that, of course. Uh, but they are very, very courageously in the fight every single day. And they are making progress. It is not frozen. It's not a stalemate. It's not as far as fast as yeah. President Zelensky would like to go, but they are making some progress. But you just mentioned that it's going to get harder in the fall and certainly into the winter. And you mentioned what they're running up against yeah. from the Russians. Another thing you told Wolf, you said, we've got to make sure we're staying behind them and supporting them. Can you elaborate more specifically on what that means in terms of U.S. aid? It means continuing to give them the kinds of things, Poppy, that they need most in this counteroffensive. And I would add that in the months leading up to the counteroffensive, uh, we fulfilled everything on the Ukrainian shopping list. Everything they said they needed for the counteroffensive they got, including training in something we call combined arms maneuver. Uh, and we're continuing to do that. We're continuing to, willing to, to continue to train Ukrainian forces. But more critically, we're giving them the kinds of tools and weapons that they need to break through those but Russian F-16s. defenses, mine clearing equipment. Okay. They've, they've been saying for a long time that they need more air power and F-16s. And I understand the training going into it, but they have been calling for more sooner. One big concern, though, is do you have the public? Do you have the will of the public, John? I was struck by the CNN polling in just the last few days that only 45 percent of Americans, this is across parties, said they believe yeah. Congress should authorize more funding to support Ukraine. Can you guarantee U.S. support for Ukraine will remain at this level or increase? The president has said publicly, and he certainly said it privately to President Zelensky, and it's not just the president, but other leaders of NATO and the G7, that we're going to stay behind Ukraine for as long as it takes. And we mean that for as long as it takes. Now, look, we all want this to be over today, and, and mm -hmm. hopefully it will be soon. Uh, but uh, we've got to stay behind Ukraine for as long as yeah. it takes. And I think the American people understand what's at stake here. They know it's not just about Ukrainian sovereignty or Ukrainian lives, though it is first and foremost about those things, Poppy. It's about Mr. Putin and stopping him in his tracks before he can go any further, because because he's right up against the eastern border there with NATO, yeah. uh, NATO's eastern flank. Uh, and I think we can all understand that if he just gets Ukraine, if he gets if he gets what he wants and he pulls Ukraine back into Russia, where does it stop? And the cost in blood and treasure to the American people, uh, to our to our financial health, obviously would be greater, at, much greater at risk. Uh, than if we just stay with Ukraine right now and help them win back this territory and defend their freedom. John, I do want to get the White House response to what we saw happen in Ecuador, the assassination of an opposition candidate in, in Ecuador, Fernand, Fernando Villavicento, shot and killed at this political yeah. rally yesterday just north of the capital city of Quito. Uh, he'd been under police protection. He had been very outspoken about organized crime. What is the White House reaction? Well, it's very shocking, um, and obviously um, uh, it's heartbreaking for him and his, for his family, for his supporters, um, uh, and I'm, I'm sure that all of Ecuador is grieving right now. I saw that uh, President Lasso uh, declared a state of emergency yes. uh, for a couple of months, uh, so it looks like they're taking this very, very seriously. We obviously uh, hope that there'll be a full, complete uh, and transparent investigation into this uh, and that the uh, that the perpetrators are held properly accountable. Uh, it's it's just a, it's a hor horrific scene. It's a disturbing video. Uh, and obviously, it's not what anybody would want uh, for the people of Ecuador 
or quite frankly, Ecuador's democracy. Certainly. And finally, to the president himself, the fact that in this FBI confrontation with a Utah man named Craig Robinson yesterday, he was killed after these multiple threats to President Biden just before he arrived in Utah. He owned a sniper rifle. He had several other firearms. The White House reaction to what we saw play out and the rhetoric that was used. Well, look, obviously, um, I, want, I don't want to get ahead of uh, a, a, an ongoing uh, investigation here um, and what the FBI is doing. Um, we're certainly grateful uh, for the great work that the FBI continues to do for all law enforcement, what they do uh, to, to protect uh, all Americans and, of course, all public officials. We're glad that nobody in law enforcement was hurt. But I really have to refer to the FBI on what next steps are here. Uh, and uh, th- this, is, this is really not about uh, just the rhetoric. It's about the actions that uh, that can sometimes go with that rhetoric. And yes. I think that's that's what we saw play out here. That's right. And threats made online consistently, not just against the president, but against Attorney General Merrick Garland, the Manhattan DA, yeah. on and on in terms of Democratic uh, politicians. John Kirby at the White House, thanks for the time this morning. You bet. Thank you. Victor. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is being called a weak dictator after he suspended a democratically elected prosecutor in Orlando. We'll tell you his reasoning. Also, Taylor Swift fans waking up to a big surprise today. New music and old music remastered. We'll tell you when you get to hear it. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. A Florida prosecutor suspended by Governor Ron DeSantis is vowing to seek re-election. DeSantis removed Monique Worrell, who's the top prosecutor in Orlando yesterday, after accusing her of neglect of duty and incompetence for under-prosecuting defendants in the Ninth Circuit. Worrell, who is a Democrat, denies those claims and slammed DeSantis. I am your duly elected state attorney for the Ninth Judicial Circuit, and nothing done by a weak dictator can change that. Well, this is the second time the Republican governor has removed a Democratic state attorney, a federal judge reviewing Warren's suspension. Uh, Andrew Warren, we're talking about, raised questions about the political motivations behind it, noting that DeSantis's office had calculated the dollar amount of free media generated by his actions. Meantime, Taylor Swift fans waking up to some very exciting news. At her Eras Tour concert in L.A. last night, Swift announced that her new album, 1989, Taylor's Version, will be out on October 27th. So that, of course, is Shake It Off, which is on that album, along with other hits, Bad Blood, Style, Wildest Dreams, and Blank Space. This will be the newest addition to her re-recorded albums after she re-released Taylor's versions Fearless, Speak Now, and Red. In her announcement, Swift said this version of 1989 was her favorite to re-record. She teased some new songs, too, in that post, writing, The five from the vault tracks are so insane, I can't believe they were ever left behind. But not for long. That's ahead. All right, under an hour from now, our major report on inflation is scheduled to be released. We will break down those numbers. like an apocalypse. People are basically running for their lives. 
combination of wildfires, high wind, and limited ways around. The danger has already proven deadly. We're looking at video of the extensive damage in Maui from raging wildfires on the island. Every single memory that we had in that household, everything was gone in the blink of an eye. The most complete accounting yet of the high life of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas shows much, much more than previously known. It's just the idea that you are receiving gifts of this magnitude. Justice Thomas has been living a life of extreme luxury for 30 years, underwritten by at least four different ultra-wealthy benefactors. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis is expected to seek charges against more than a dozen people when she presents her case before a grand jury next week. CNN has now learned that Willis recently received additional security protection. It's pathetic to think that we have to add additional security because of a made-up fake narrative around an election. It's unfortunate, but it's necessary, and it's part of the process of moving through this. An opposition candidate in Ecuador's upcoming presidential race has been assassinated. The killing appears to be caught on video. A burst of gunfire was heard as he was getting into a waiting vehicle. <laughs> Several people were hit by the bullets. FBI agents shoot and kill a self-described megatrumper, who they say made death threats against President Biden. In one thread, Robertson wrote, I hear Biden is coming to Utah, and that he was going to dust off the M24 sniper rifle. This was someone who they were already very concerned about, and then he started talking about acting out against the president on this trip. I'm sure that raised everyone's concern to the absolute highest level. Well, good morning, everyone. We're glad you're with us. Victor Blackwell by my side. It's devastating what's happening in Hawaii and continues. So sad. The uh, death toll there, 36, and that's could right. go up. Yeah, yeah, it looks like it. That's the breaking news we begin with this hour, and it is out of Hawaii. We're just catastrophic and unprecedented wildfires, as Victor said, have killed at least 36 people. That death toll is in Maui, and it soared overnight. Bodies were found in the ruins. Take a look at what's left. Lahaina. It's a historic town, a very popular vacation spot. The fast-moving inferno wiped out entire neighborhoods, and people jumped into the ocean to escape the flames. The fire was fueled in part by powerful winds from a hurricane. Take a look at this video obtained by our local affiliate. What you can see there is hurricane-force winds whipping palm trees and explosions as a marina and boats go up in flames. Let's take a look at that devastation on the ground. These are just holes of homes. The neighborhoods, the businesses burned to the ground. Listen to the survivor describe the, the situation. Still get dead bodies in the water floating and on the seawall. They've been sitting there since last night. We've been pulling people out since last night, trying to save people's lives. And I feel like we're not getting the help we need. This is a nationwide issue at this point. Yeah, we need help, a lot of help. We got to get people down here. Veronica Miracle joins us live in Maui, where it is the middle of the night. So you haven't even seen the extent of the destruction. We'll see that when the sun comes up. But what can you tell us being on the ground? That's exactly right, Poppy and Victor. Uh, the death toll information also coming in overnight. So many people here on the island of Maui will be waking up to the news that 36 of their community members, loved ones, friends have died. That fire in Lahaina is one of three fires currently burning on the island here. Firefighting efforts continue as well as search and rescue efforts. Oh my gosh, look at the harbor. The view from above is of shock and heartbreak. Oh my gosh. 
We were not prepared for what we saw. It looked like an area that had been bombed in the war. Wildfires rampaging across the island of Maui. Our entire street was burned to the ground. Decimating homes and businesses. Local people have lost everything. They've lost their house, they've lost their animals, and it's, it's devastating. Lahaina is on fire. The historic town of Lahaina, a popular tourist and economic hub on the island's west side, particularly affected with hundreds of structures impacted. It happened so fast, people stuck in traffic trying to get out and they're, they're slaying on, on both sides of the road, like something out of a, a horror movie. Most of the fires on Maui fueled in part by violent winds caused by Hurricane Dora, churning more than 800 miles away. Those winds now subsiding as the storm pushes away. The primary focus is to save lives and then to prevent human suffering and to mitigate great property loss. State Department crews assisting in efforts to restore communication across the islands and distribute water. With military helicopters aiding in extinguishing the fires. Two CH-47 supporting Maui County, they flew 13 hours, did 58 drops and about 150,000 uh, gallons of water to, uh, to assist with su suppression of the fire. Recovery will be a long road ahead, according to Hawaii's Lieutenant Governor Sylvia Luke. The damage to the infrastructure, it's not just um, buildings. I mean, these were small businesses that invested in Maui. These were local residents. And, uh, you know, we need to figure out a way to help a lot of people in the next several years. And 11,000 people were flown out of Maui yesterday. Another 1,500 people expected to leave today. Airlines are offering reduced fares. They're also increasing the number of flights. They're trying to get people out. Officials are also asking people to cancel their plans to not come here. They want to save the resources for those who desperately need it. Victor, Poppy. Veronica Miracle, thank you for that reporting from Maui. Joining us now is pilot and director of operations for Air Maui Helicopters uh, is Richie Olson. Uh, Richie, can you hear me? We look like we have a bit of an image yep. problem. You can hear me good? Okay. All right. We'll figure I the pictures out. Yeah. Good. Uh, yeah. um, the, the images we're seeing from, from Maui, the damage is catastrophic. We, we understand that. But as someone who has flown over Maui for more than 50 years, what does it feel like to see it this way? Well, when we went up in the air uh, the other morning to see what kind of damage there might have been, we never suspected that we'd see what we saw. We thought that we, from the previous night, we were watching the news and seeing the, some fires in Lahaina and so forth, and we thought that we'd, we would see some damage. But as we approached the south shore, the south end of Lahaina and proceeded to head up the coast, uh, we were devastated by, by what we saw. It was just... Uh, it was heartbreaking because I've lived here most of my life and the entire town of Lahaina is basically was burnt to the ground. The entire historic area, uh, Front Street, all the shops, uh, people's homes, hundreds of homes. It was um, the other pilots that were with me to, to view this. They, we looked at each other in disbelief. We could not believe what we were seeing. It was just, it was shocking, heartbreaking, and we're, our heart goes out to the, so many people that are displaced and homeless at this time.
And we're looking at some of your video now. Uh, we've spoken to a couple of guests here who are still looking for family members, hoping to hear from friends. Are all of your friends and family members there accounted for? Uh, they are. Uh, yesterday at work, we have had some employees that weren't able to be, get in touch with some of their family members, but they have now been uh, found and contacted. But, um, you know, these this is a long-term uh, situation here. These people that lost their homes, we have over 600 people in the War Memorial Stadium, the gym. We have people in our churches seeking refuge, and they have they have no place to go. They're going to have to be, have some kind of temporary uh, housing set up for these people. It's it's just it's a disaster like Hawaii has never seen. Yeah. And listen, I'll, I'll say I'll preface this by saying it is a, a secondary or, or tertiary consideration after life and the, the homes that people have lost, every tangible thing they have. But uh, Maui relies upon tourism. You are in the tourism industry. And what this means for business uh, and, and uh, the ability to sustain this community, when you look at the destruction, how long and how badly has the community been hit and hurt? Oh, I, I don't know that Lahaina itself will actually recover from the situation, especially with the loss of, his, of the historic area of the downtown and Front Street and all the shops and businesses where all the local people that live there that work, hundreds and hundreds of people that work in that, in that Lahaina town area, you know, that there's, it's just leveled to the ground, dust and ashes at this time. So this is going to be a long-term recovery for uh, the economy for that for the entire island, let alone Lahaina itself. Well, Richie, it's a little after 2 a.m. Uh, there, and uh, I uh, hope that we can reach out to you again if you go back up and get more pictures uh, showing us what is there. Um, Poppy just spoke with uh, John Kirby from the White House saying that there is federal help on the way. Uh, we're all thinking of you there uh, in Hawaii. Richie Olston, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Devastating to hear. This morning, two of Donald Trump's co-defendants in the classified documents case will appear in court in Fort Pierce, Florida. Walt Nada, Trump's body man, and Carlos de Oliveira, the property manager at Mar-a-Lago, both are charged with helping Trump obstruct justice and the Justice Department's investigation into classified documents that were stored there. Randy Kay is outside the courthouse. Took a little bit to get here. They needed local counsel, Florida lawyers. What's going to happen today? Yeah, good morning, Poppy. Uh, well, what we won't see today is Donald Trump. He has already submitted a waiver of appearance and a not guilty plea uh, related to the new charges in the superseding indictment. We will seek his aide, Walt Nada. He's expected to be here uh, and enter a plea. Uh, he'll be here along with a couple of attorneys. We understand he's already pleaded not guilty in the earlier charges in the classified documents case. And we will see the property manager, Carlos de Oliveira. This is the first time, Poppy, that he will enter a plea. He was in a Miami court last week without a Florida barred attorney who could enter a plea on his behalf. So we expect that he will be able to enter a plea here today. Uh, this is expected to be a very quick arraignment. They will have the charges read to them uh, by the judge. Uh, when they appear in court, those charges do include false statements, conspiracy to obstruct justice, as well as concealing documents. And all of this, Poppy, relates to uh, interviews that they gave to the FBI, talking about those documents there. Uh, both men had said that they did were not aware of the documents 
uh, but the prosecutors do believe that there is video uh, of them moving the documents around Mar-a-Lago. Uh, and of course, uh, there are the alleged attempts uh, by both men to uh, try and uh, destroy the security camera footage uh, that would have possibly uh, shown that. Uh, of course, um, the trial for the former president uh, is in question here because of these hearings and these uh, co-defendants that have been added to the case. Uh, some of this uh, could be delayed. So the question is whether or not Donald Trump will actually go to trial on this case uh, before the presidential election, Poppy. It's scheduled for May of next year, but we'll see if that sticks. That is the question. Randy Kay, thanks very much outside the courthouse there. Moments from now, a number of fake electors who are facing criminal charges in Michigan are scheduled to be arraigned in Lansing. Each one of them faces eight state felony charges for their actions that involved a Donald Trump-backed plot to subvert the Electoral College after the 2020 elections in Michigan. CNN's Jessica Schneider is joining us live from Washington, D.C. All right, Jessica, we know that there are 16 people being charged. Uh, will all uh, 16 be arraigned today? Well, some of them have already been arraigned, mm. but the rest are expected to appear in court, Victor. And really, these are 16 prominent Republicans. They range from a school board member, a mayor, Republican officials. Most of them will be appearing in court at 830 this morning. We've learned, however, many of them will actually appear via Zoom. But they are all charged with eight felony counts each. And if they were convicted, it would amount to decades in prison. Most of them are saying they are vowing to fight these charges vigorously. Some have even claimed that the attorney General Dana Nessel, who's a Democrat, is wrongly targeting political opponents because Nessel announced these charges last month. It was, though, after a months-long investigation into this fake electors plot where these 16 Trump allies, they showed up at the Michigan State Capitol in December 2020. They tried to storm into the Capitol with those fake certificates that falsely declared Trump as the winner of the state's electoral votes when, of course, in fact, Joe Biden had won the state by more than 100,000 votes. So now all six of them being charged with counts like forgery, counts like publishing a counterfeit record. Now, notably, these are the first state charges stemming from this fake elector plot. We actually saw this plot unfold in seven states. Of course, this is the same plot that's at the center of the indictment that was handed up against uh, the former president last week, Victor. So it's going to be interesting seeing this case unfold on the state level with these charges like forgery and fraud, and then seeing how it interacts potentially with what we're seeing from the special counsel. But these 16 Republicans, they're vowing to fight these charges. They're really first of their kind charges for what really was an unprecedented plot anyway. Victor. Jessica Schneider for us in Washington. Thank you. All right, we are very lucky because we have John King in the studio after he's gone all over the place to meet voters. First stop, Iowa. He's going to tell us what they told him about what they're looking for in a candidate and where they stand on the current frontrunners. I think we need to get rid of Biden. I think we need to get rid of Trump. I think we need to move on. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. All right, less than two weeks until the first Republican primary debate and five months until the Iowa caucuses. CNN's John King spoke to Iowa voters about what they're looking for in his new series, All Over the Map. And John King is with right. us now. I love this idea, right? right? Going right. out and speaking right. to people. All right, so we have great people covering the candidates. Yeah. I want to cover the campaign through the eyes of voters. One of the great gifts of what we do, we get paid to learn, mm -hmm. right? So over the next 15 months, we're going to assemble vote voters in the swing states, in Wisconsin, you know, in Georgia, in Arizona. But the first defining question is, can Donald Trump be stopped? Is his renomination inevitable? And Iowa 
will have a huge say in that. So that's where we start with Republican voters in Iowa. We spent a week there last week. You do find a divide. And you also find that many of these Republican voters, they stop watching this network and they believe things that would not pass our fact check. But they're good people. They're honest people. And so this is the beginning of a conversation that I hope over the next five months in Iowa and then 15 months around the country helps me understand, us understand them, and maybe they'll better understand us. Business is booming. This is a typical residential install. I mean, this Midwest Solar's workload now running at 15 to 20 installations a month. We lost money the first year we were in business, and we're going to make money in our second year. It's a small system, 10 panels. Chris Mudd is the CEO and says yes. Give President Biden some credit. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, there are lots of grants available uh, to business owners. Um, the tax credit at the production. But Mudd is a lifelong Iowa Republican, would prefer that tax credit money be spent on a border wall and hopes for a Donald Trump comeback. Do I think that Donald Trump's perfect? No, I think he's, do I, I don't personally, I'm not a big fan of who he is and what he does and how he lives, but I think the decisions and the things that he did for our country were good. The Mudd family is living both the American dream and the American divide. A business Jim Mudd Sr. started in his basement 42 years ago now employs 80 people, clients coast to coast. I'm a lot older than you. Dad and three sons are Republicans and Trump supporters. Two daughters are Democrats. They can still come to Thanksgiving dinner. They still come. We still love them. <laughs> we visited as Trump was indicted a second time by the special counsel. Why are they attacking him so hard? Why are they going after this guy so hard? Does everybody really believe that everything that happened was exactly the way that the government's laying it out today? I don't. The friends and family around the table don't watch and don't trust CNN. There is reverence for Ronald Reagan here. But listen. The trust is gone. Reagan's optimism replaced by Trump's grievances. We've got to find our own way to take care of ourselves. Reagan's disdain of big government replaced by Trump's distrust of just about everything. I think he thinks he was stolen from him. Still questions about the 2020 election. And I had a lot of people who agree with him. Criticism of the Trump prosecutions. But nothing about that deal is the American way. I don't think. And this. If you think the United States should be supporting Ukraine in the fight against Putin, raise your hand. Nobody. You don't have to be that smart to put the, connect the dots, right? And so are, is the war to cover up sins committed so you can cover your tracks? There's too much money that's been thrown over there. You think all the NATO countries would do what Biden told them to do because he's trying to cover up some Hunter Biden business deal by... Um, it all depends on how uh, Zelensky, how much dirt he has on Biden to keep the money coming. That's 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 out there. No, because um, it's right? Hey, well, how how do you how do you trust when you know the government has shut down Facebook and shut down Twitter and told them to not show certain certain news stories? A few days here makes clear Trump's grip is very strong, but roughly half of the party wants to move on. And they see their first in the nation vote as the best chance to derail him. The growth around Des Moines is stunning, and the suburbs are Trump's kryptonite. I don't appreciate the negativity. Jocelyn Taylor is a single mother who manages construction projects. Tim Scott intrigues her. Nikki Haley, too. I'm a little concerned about it. Sometimes Ron DeSantis. There's just a lot of 
eh, around him. <laughs> is, that, is that a technical term? Yeah. <laughs> Betsy Sarcone, also a single mom, says DeSantis is her current favorite, but he hasn't closed the sale. She is done with Trump's GOP. I see the party as a party of personal responsibility. And for this man to still be on the national stage, representing the Republican Party is very troubling to me. Sarcone and Taylor live a few miles apart, but don't know each other. Both voted for Trump twice after supporting someone else in the 2016 caucuses. Both want someone new this time. Both think, shop now, but in the end, rally friends around one Trump alternative. I think the moderates need to band together. It's, that's kind of like a no-brainer, right? Sioux City is 200 miles from the Des Moines suburbs. Trump is much stronger here. Did you caucus in 2016? I did. For who? I caucused for Trump. Why? Well, he does have charisma. I mean, whether you like him or not, he does. I liked his policies. Attorney Priscilla Forsyth is a Democrat turned Trump voter, but she thinks he should have honored the 2020 election results. I think we need to get rid of Biden. I think we need to get rid of Trump. I think we need to move on. Forsyth and friend Lisa McGaffey are Sioux City Explorers fans. McGaffey, though, not scouting a new candidate. You think Donald Trump is an honest and trustworthy person? Yes. Yes. This is warm-up season. Five months until Iowa votes. Five months until Republicans divided over Trump make a defining choice. So for me, this is an enormous treat to sit down with these Republicans, and a lot of them disagree with us and what we do, but we learned. And I'm hoping to start a conversation based on respect. And you go there, and look, you know, a lot of people think Trump's nomination is inevitable. I, I would say it's probable at the moment, but five months is a long time. Five months is a long time, and especially, it's my 10th presidential campaign. What jumped out at me going back there is the explosion of growth in the Des Moines suburbs. Politics is about math. There are 60,000 more people in the Des Moines suburbs than lived there seven years ago when Trump was running in that big crowded field. So it's a fascinating beginning. I'm so glad you're doing this. Well, I love, as a, my dad was born in Des Moines, so I, a lot of my childhood in Iowa, it's so fascinating and important. I'm from Minnesota, and I hear a lot of that, what you heard, echoed from people who are very important to me around me in Minnesota who don't feel heard. Right. And because of this project, they can feel heard. That's the key part. A lot of what you saw, especially in that round table, would not get through our fact checkers, right? And so I push back gently there and politely. I want to continue this conversation. I want to know how they got there. Right? I want to learn from them, and I hope they learn from us. But to your point, they were grateful that I came. They say the national media doesn't come see them. They feel forgotten. They feel ignored and they feel disrespected yes. by the national government and by the national media, big institutions, right? We're, we're, we're the media, right? And, and look, Fox News pokes that. You know, they try to, even though they're big media too, they poke that and exacerbate that. But what's missing from a lot of our conversations is respect. Now, some of their views are out there, as I said, but, but how'd they get there? Why'd they get there? How long did it take? What are the causes? They're good people. They're anchors of their community. Yeah. Um, and so they, I hope to start a conversation. Maybe I'm tilting at windmills, but start a conversation and just try to build some respect and understand each other. There are a lot of people who watch this, as you pointed out at the top, that the, some of the most ardent Trump supporters don't watch this network. Right. And those who will watch what you just reported will wonder, why do we keep doing this? Why and how is he at 50 percent? Right. This is how one question answers the other. Right. Go there and get the answer. Forgive me for interrupting, but also uh, last night, you know, liberal Twitter went after me for why are you talking to these mm. people? Donald Trump got yeah. 77 million votes in the last election. He got more votes losing to Joe Biden than he got when he beat Hillary Clinton. He is the faraway frontrunner for the Republican Party. We yeah. cannot ignore, whether you like him or not, 
All these legal controversies are somehow, at least at the moment, making him stronger. We'll see if that lasts. But he is the faraway frontrunner for the Republican Party. He's a news story. We're in the news business. John King, you're going to stick with us, but yeah. everyone needs to know, you are going to be at the magic wall on election night, right? Yes. You can't, you can't desert that. Unless I, Even if you'll be I, all over the map, you need to be at that Just map. the yes. That's it's the reason good. to go all over the map. <laughs> That's to exactly learn. right. It's to learn. Good, right. good, 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 good. good. Stay with, with us. All right, a man accused of threatening to assassinate Joe Biden is killed by FBI agents. We have new details about who he was and what led to that standoff. Also, the special counsel investigating Donald Trump secured a search warrant of the former president's Twitter account. We're going to explain why ahead. So this morning, we are learning more about that FBI deadly raid against the man who allegedly threatened to assassinate the president. FBI special agent shot and killed him in his home in Utah yesterday. A law enforcement source says Craig Robertson pointed a gun at the agents as they were giving him commands while trying to serve him a warrant. And that's when they shot him. This all happened hours before the president landed there in Utah. CNN affiliate KSTU got the video of the moments agents descended on Robert's home watch. So that was a flashbang, not a gunshot. Uh, we've also obtained court documents detailing the graphic and specific threats Robertson made against President Biden and other public figures in recent months. They include social media posts with photos like this one, a gun Robertson called his Democrat eradicator, another one with several guns just getting ready for the 2024 election cycle. And on Sunday, he posted, I hear Biden is coming to Utah, digging out my old ghillie suit and cleaning off the dust from my M24 sniper rifle. Welcome, buffoon in chief. Joining us now, CNN legal analyst and former Manhattan prosecutor Karen Friedman Agnifilo and Estet Herndon and John King. They are back with us, too. You're new to the table, so let me start with you. Um, it is like these tweets and these posts are contemptible, but at least they have a heads up. How is the FBI, their resources, are they keeping pace with the expanse of having to search for all of these? Fortunately, they got to this one when they did. I mean, luckily, jurisdictions like New York and the NYPD and at the FBI, they're on top of many of these threats. But there really are a lot of people out there who they don't even know about and they're not on their radar yeah. screen. And that's why I think Trump's words that he these dog whistles that he calls out to his followers, you know, whether it's the baseball bat picture next to uh, D.A. Alvin Bragg's head or... Who was also on this list, by the way. Exactly. This guy. Exactly. Or whether it's the recent uh, tweet that he said, if you're coming after me, I'm, you, know, you go after me, I'm going after you. They hear him. He doesn't ever shut that down. He doesn't try to stop them. They hear his words. They know what he wants them to do. And it's becoming frightening and dangerous to law enforcement and to the rule of law. Now, no one's linking Trump directly to this man. But look at January 6th, right? He, for 187 minutes after he pointed an armed mob at the Capitol, he, they, he didn't do anything other than um, do a tweet at 2.24 in the afternoon, sort of exacerbating it. He doesn't ever say, don't do it. And then later on, he denies that that's what he meant, right? Mm -hmm. but, they, but he never stops them. And so it's becoming increasingly alarming, and it's very difficult, and it's dangerous. His words have consequences. Mm -hmm. John, having covered, I think, 10 yeah. presidential campaigns... Yeah. 
Just some perspective for us. Andy McCabe, the former deputy director of the FBI, told us earlier in the program he thinks things like this are going to get worse as Trump heads to trial, for example. Well, the evidence is in front of us. January 6th, the plot to kidnap, take over the state of Michigan, the Michigan governor and all that. And so the burden is on people in positions of responsibility. Karen's right. There's no link to Donald Trump here, per se. Direct Donald Trump did not say, you know, do this. But his words, right? He posted just the other day on Truth Social. You come after me. I'm coming after you. Given what happened in Michigan, given what happened on January 6th, anyone in a position of authority and influence, including people in the news media, especially politicians, be careful. Look at the environment you're in. Accept your responsibility and act responsibly. If you didn't mean it, but you saw some unintended consequence, then dial it back. Change it. Say, I don't mean violence. Right? Tone your language down. We live in a polarized society. You see this slice of radicalization now. We used to think it was a tiny fringe. It's growing. Talk to anybody in law enforcement. It is growing. And when something like that is growing, anybody in a position of influence and authority needs to think not once, not twice, but 10 times about what they say and how they say it. He's got a new ad up now that's airing in New York and Georgia calling these DAs and the special counsel the fraud squad going after them again. I said, let me come to you with the ProPublica reporting about Justice Clarence Thomas that beyond Harlan Crow, there are now three additional billionaires who have given... 38 of these uh, vacations, 26 private jet flights, undisclosed up to this point, uh, thanks to their reporting, we now know. But what is going to happen? Democrats are trying to enact some type of ethics, some more rules. The court says, thanks, but this is not your purview. I mean, I think nothing. (laughs) If that's the example of what we've seen earlier this year, we can plan on happening. I mean, ProPublica has led on this, kind of giving us a full accounting of the scope uh, of these relationships that Justice Thomas and some other justices have with these billionaire benefactors. This goes even beyond what we've seen from them and some of the New York Times has reported that shows the kind of interwoven nature between these two groups. The thing is, the, the, the kind of recourse is really unclear. You've had Democrats try to call these justices in, try to kind of put pressure to, to try to execute some ethics guidelines, and the court has basically thumbed their nose at them. They kind of understand the independent power and the kind of independence from political pressure that they really place above anything else. I think this spoke to what we were talking about last time with the erosion of trust yeah. that continues to happen on the kind of court level. Yep. Yeah, the Supreme Court has record low approval ratings right now that it's ever had. And to have confidence in the judiciary is so key yeah. for our democracy. I just wonder your perspective, having had such a having had so much of her career in it. Yeah, I mean, look, again, Donald Trump, I, I, I hate to keep coming back to him, but, you know, he's tearing down our institutions, right? He criticizes whether it's law enforcement or the courts. Or, you know, people used to have respect for for the courts and the judiciary and the three branches of government. But now everything has been politicized. Everything's been polarized. And if the courts won't police themselves, you know, like like the Supreme Court, like Clarence Thomas uh, and 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 it becomes sort of a hypocritical, how, how, how do we trust you if, if you won't even police yourself, if you won't even uh, do anything? You know, it looks, it's a bad look, if nothing else. Final word on this. At a minimum, there's just no excuse for the lack of transparency in today's age. Everything in our lives, every sector of the economy has changed because of globalization technology. Uh, so if you think this is okay, uh, you know, why have the ethics rules been updated in years? Everything has been updated. Everything should be updated as technology changes, as public opinion changes. But for me, the main issue is transparency. If you think it's okay to do these things, disclose them. Put it out there and let people decide. Don't hide them because that makes it suspicious. Just the very nature that we're learning so late after the fact makes it suspicious whether it is or not. Mm-hmm.
We've not heard from the court or from Justice Thomas on the latest reporting. We'll see if uh, they have something to say uh, now that it's out. John, Karen, Ested, thank you. Thank you. Just released the July inflation report. Our business team coming through the data. That's ahead. And arraignments happening right now in Michigan. 16 fake electors. They're facing criminal charges related to their actions after the 2020 election. Live feed of the hearing you're watching right now. All right, this just in, the July inflation report. CNN business correspondent Rahel Solomon is here with the numbers. All right, what did we learn? Good morning. So this is a nuanced inflation report. So at face value, it actually looks like an acceleration. But let me put this in context. So headline inflation came in at 3.2% on an annual basis, which appears to be an acceleration. But it is actually what economists call a base effects. Essentially, this has a lot to do with what inflation was doing a year ago, right? So I think the monthly picture actually gives us a better sense of what inflation is actually doing. So you can see inflation held steady at 0.2% on a monthly basis. Uh, 90% of that increase was shelter. 90% of that was shelter. When you look at uh, sort of core inflation, which strips away categories like energy, which can be really volatile, or food, which can be really volatile, uh, that also remains steady at 0.2% on a monthly basis. On an annual basis, that came in at 4.7%. I want to show you some of the categories that we as consumers deal with the most. You can see gasoline prices over the last year or so have fallen quite precipitously, about 20%. Uh, food prices, 4.9%, and shelter uh, still higher by 7.7%. So what we're seeing in this report, again, shelter prices still high, but we saw some declines in Areas like airline fares, used cars and trucks, medical care. So still seeing some declines. It's a moderating inflation picture, uh, despite what the headline looks like. What does this mean for the Fed? The Fed meets next month. They still have a lot more reports between now and then. They have another jobs report. They have more inflation reports. But I will say that a report like this, Citibank, for example, put out a report this morning saying that if, in fact, we saw core CPI, core inflation coming in at 0.2%, it would give the Fed some some credibility, some some evidence to perhaps pause next month. So take that for what you will. I mean, we still have a few more weeks left, but maybe a pause. Maybe. Maybe. All right. Saying there's a chance. So you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> Rahel Solomon, thanks so much. Good to be Thank with you, you Rahel. Popular presidential candidate in Ecuador was assassinated in broad daylight. Fernando Vivasencio was killed as he was leaving a campaign rally. This happened just north of the capital. Of Quito, we now have footage that appears to show the moment he was fatally shot. A warning to our viewers, it's very hard to watch. Vicencio was an outspoken critic against corruption and organized crime fueled by drug trafficking. Investigators say the suspected gunman died in police custody after an exchange of gunfire. Ecuador's president says the election sent for, set for August 20th will go ahead as planned. All right, a woman says that she is grateful to be alive after being bitten by a shark at a New York beach. It's the first such attack there in 70, 70, 70 years. So are shark attacks really on the rise? Harry Enton is here with the data. So we told you earlier this week about a woman bit by a shark right here in New York City. Well, she's grateful to be alive, she says. The 65-year-old is said to be focusing on her recovery after the shark bit her leg. 
The attack happened at Rockaway Beach in Queens, New York, once again raised a lot of fears about sharks and attacks this summer. Are they actually on the rise, though? Harry Anton here with this morning's number. Are they? This morning's number is about 31. That's how many shark attacks there have been in the U.S. this year. That 31, to answer your question, Poppy, ma matches the 2022 about? pace. It's either well, a shark attack Well, or it's some not. of them don't necessarily get reported. Okay. So I want to provide a confidence interval here. I don't want to express too much confidence going on. Fair. So it matches the 2022 pace, and this is the rate that we've seen so far this century. So the answer is no. We are not, in fact, seeing a disproportionate amount of shark attacks this year or in the last few years. It's remained pretty steady. And I will note, the risk of dying from a shark attack is very, very small. It's about one in four million. To give you an understanding, a car accident, the chance of dying in your lifetime is about one in 84, significantly greater. Or a lightning strike, which I think a lot of people think is unlikely, is still far more likely than a shark attack at about one in 80,000. So, so the facts are, shark attacks are not on the rise, and the chance of dying from a shark attack is very, very small. But is dying the threshold? I mean, I, I think like a real hard bite is enough for me. I don't need to die. Um, are people really afraid of sharks, though? Yeah, I think that... I am. I, I raise my hand, too. I am petrified of them. I am absolutely terrified of sharks. 51% of Americans agree that they are absolutely terrified of sharks. You and I are on the same. Oh, no, I'm not really scared of them. You, you're not... Oh, what? You, the last slide says that I'm not going to die. It's like, so, I mean... <laughs> Well, I, I, you know, I'll just note, I think part of the reason why people are so terrified of sharks, and a lot of psychologists actually agree on this, was it was the movie Jaws back in the mid-70s. 77% of Americans have seen the movie Jaws, and I think that is largely responsible for a lot of the of fear that we've Of course I've had. seen it. Have Can you, you, you do it? the no. music? That's Batman. Is that Batman? No. You both do Batman. No. That is 100% Jaws. Dun, 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 oh, okay. Y'all just ah, did yes, that. You haven't seen it, but you knew it. Well, I know the music. I have not seen the movie. All right. All right. Thank you, Harry. Thank you. We appreciate it. All right, we'll continue our breaking news coverage uh, out of Hawaii. The wildfires there. 36 people now confirmed dead. CNN is live on the ground. The 3-2 pitch. Swung on, popped up. Shallow center field. Rojas sprinting in. He's under it. He has space. Oh, it's a big moment for Phillies pitcher Michael Lorenz, and he pitched the fourth no-hitter of the baseball season. He needed 124 pitches to get that done, and it was just his first start in front of the home crowd there in Philadelphia. You see here, after he got mobbed by his teammates, Lorenz then celebrated with his family on the field, and that was his nine-month-old daughter, June, lifted her into the air. Don't let other people tell you what you can and can't do, and that's... Man, I, I worked insanely hard to, to make this dream come true. Um, I've watched every single one of Nolan Ryan's no-hitters because I've, I've always wanted to throw a no-hitter, and the fact that I just did it in front of this fan base, I, I can't believe it. There was also this special moment at last night's game. Outfielder Wes Wilson made his major league debut after spending seven years in the minors and in his very first at-bat. 28-year-old hit a home run into left field in the stands there. Wilson's family went nuts. The moment brings his father to tears. You see him there. Uh, all around, a good night for the Phillies and their families. I love that. All right, paging John Berman.
Red Sox fans are used to the green monster at Fenway Park swallowing home run balls, but this time it ate a 96-mile-an-hour line drive. Kyle Isbell hit this laser into left field, and then the ball seemingly disappears. You can see Masataka Yoshida frantically looking for the ball. Eventually, he found it lodged inside one of the lights at the bottom of the wall. A first, this has not happened in the ballpark's 111-year history, and in case you were wondering, the hit was ruled a... Ground rule double, Red Sox manager Alex Cora said after the game, they always talk about the rules if a ball ever gets stuck in the monster. He never thought it would actually happen, though. The Red Sox were going to beat the Royals 4-3. to three. I really want to thank everybody in the room and in the control room who helped us uh, get through these two uh, baseball so true. stories. How did I um, do? You did you well. You did enough? well. Right, yeah. Y'all are the real MVPs. <laughs> it's so true. Thanks. We'll see you here tomorrow. CNN News Central is now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.